I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. To explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Others lock up your sons. The fangirls are busting out all over. It's Fangirl Radio. Fangirl Radio. Here's the fangirls on Jackalope Radio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the latest and greatest episode of the Fangirl Radio Show. I'm your host, Jessica Dwyer, and tonight's episode is packed full of great interviews. We've got the gentleman from Radio Silence here to talk about the new possession flick, Devil's Due, as well as Mr. Doug Aronofsky, who is the director of Nurse 3D. So it's a big horror DVD fest here on Fangirl Radio this week. Also, I have some Weekend Geek stuff to talk to you about and before we get into our interviews. So let's get started on that because this show is packed as I with interviews. Interviews everywhere. So um, the Weekend Geek, uh, let's do some recaps because we had three very major episodes hit in the world of geekdom. And the first would be Hannibal. Oh my good lord. Um, the episode was called Yakamono. And many major things went down. As of last week, we knew that Miriam Lass was alive and um, sans one arm. So uh, she focuses a lot of this episode on her. And actually, by the way, this one was actually co-written by Brian Fuller. And it is a major episode in the Hannibal series as uh, we have a major character death. Actually, a couple of them, but one very major character, which changes the game completely in the Hannibal mythos. Um, so I'm kind of trying to figure out how they're going to get where we um, go in Silence of the Lambs now because of this. But anyway, as the episode progresses, we see that Alana Bloom is um, completely on Hannibal's side. We'll not hear a word about him being a bad guy. Um, they are also um, have Will Graham be released, and there's that wonderful scene of him being reunited with his dogs, which is great. Will is a changed man thanks to Hannibal's influence. Um, he is definitely out to get Hannibal, as we already knew. But um, this time around, it's he knows that he's going to have to play a game with uh, Hannibal on catching him. Um, but as I said, Alana Bloom will not hear a word of that. And uh, also, Dr. Chilton decides he's going to try and get Hannibal caught as well because he's afraid because of everyone that has been involved with Hannibal has ended up dead. Uh, so Chilton tries to get Jack Crawford to listen to him in terms of Hannibal being the, the ripper. But it still doesn't quite work out for him and what happens is that they find Abel Gideon being basically cut up for steak in his own house and Hannibal's there dressed a la Patrick Bateman in a clear plastic suit and um, 
Dr. Chilton is framed as the Ripper himself, and Hannibal has played this so perfectly that it is it's just a bad way for Dr. Chilton to, to end up. So he uh, escapes and runs to Will, who's the only person he believes would believe him in not being the Ripper. And what happens is he gets taken prisoner, and they um, they're, uh, Lana Bloom is brought in to question him. And basically, bad things happen for Dr. Chilton in the way of Miriam Lass, um, because Hannibal has brainwashed her somehow into thinking that Chilton was the one that had her prisoner. And she shoots him in the face, and Dr. Chilton is dead. Major, major change in the Hannibal mythos. I'm not sure how this is going to play out. There's no way he could have lived through that because basically his brains blew out behind his head. Uh, the other part of this that was interesting is now um, Will Graham, after this is all said and done, goes to Hannibal to resume his therapy and there will be a reckoning, um, according to Will. And so he decides to go back and visit Lecter. So now we are back to changed Will Graham with a very nervous, quite quite nervous with reason to be Hannibal Lecter. So it was an amazing episode. But like I said, I'm not quite sure how they're going to play out this Dr. Chilton thing. As he was a major piece in the ongoing story, especially with Clarice Starling. So who knows how that's going to go. Um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was awesome. I am still like amazed by how good the show has gotten uh the the uh series has taken an upturn in quality but not in quantity of viewers we're still not that high in viewers and uh, they only have two episodes left this season the latest episode was called providence and in this we see garrett um uh played by pill paxton and agent ward are definitely the bad guys at least Ward, he's shooting people and taking them out. So I'm going to go with he is completely Hydra now. Uh, they free Raina, the flower dress girl, um, to help them in what they're doing with uh, the... They basically go to the, 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 um, the fridge and steal all the tech and release all the prisoners, too. Meanwhile, Coulson and company are uh, trying to escape from the shield facilities because... Uh, bad things are happening and the military has decided that the S.H.I.E.L.D. is now a terrorist organization. So uh, we get a cameo by Adrian Pazjar, who is actually the voice of Tony Stark on the Avengers cartoon series, but was also in Heroes, of course, and is awesome. He's playing Colonel Glenn Talbot, who, if you are a reader of the Hulk comic books, that name means a lot to you because he is Eddie Ross's ex-husband, and he played a major role in the Hulk comics. And he actually looks like him, too. It's it's great. I was, like, squeeing aloud when that happened. But um, anyway, Coulson and the team escape in the... In the um, in the uh, plane, and they are trying to figure out what to do. And Coulson's basically losing everything now. This is some really great quality Clark Gregg stuff going on. He has lost all faith. You know, his his world is, is crumbling around him at this point, and all he has to hold on to are the few members of his team. By the way, they still don't know Ward is a bad guy. So um, 
Coulson is slowly losing it. He's already given his life for S.H.I.E.L.D. and now S.H.I.E.L.D.'s turning out to be Hydra and it's just not a good place for Coulson. And so what happens is he gets a text on his S.H.I.E.L.D. badge actually with coordinates from supposedly Nick Fury and they find a space and there they run into Patton Oswalt playing the agent Eric Koenig um, and uh, Patton Oswalt is great in this and he actually finds out there that Fury is alive but before that all happens you see this glorious freak out by Coulson who's just basically halfway crying as he's realizing you know a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent is doesn't mean anything anymore at least to the world but to him that's all he's had and there's a great scene there. And as the show has been progressing, we, we're building to this now that Coulson's really getting to, to play some great stuff. He and Agent May together are are, are just a, some ma major awesome scenes. So Shield, Agents of Shield has won me back, but is it too little, too late? Is it? We only got two episodes left of the show. And they have lost almost a two-thirds, almost half of their viewers. So it's, I don't know. I, I don't know if they've actually announced a second season yet. But um, we'll see. Next, the other big geek out moment on television this year. The Purple Wedding on Game of Thrones and the death of the biggest dick on TV Prince Joffrey, or King Joffrey, I guess now would be the, the term. Dead Joffrey is even better, and that's what happened, and it was glorious. And a lot of people were freaking out about it online, of course, that hadn't read the books, but come on, you knew he was going to die. And it was done very well. Lots of subtle little things hinting at who actually was the one that murdered him. Of course, everyone thinks it's Tyrion. Um, but I actually like what um, George R. R. Martin said online about um, Joffrey's death, which is you forget because of Jack Gleason's awesome performance that he really is a 13 year old boy. In the books, he's 13. He's a psychomaniac, yes, but he's only 13. And his death scene kind of, and, and, um, and Martin talked about this, how it was played out actually made you realize he's still just a young boy and it was really well done you almost felt sorry for him even though he's such a bastard but i really enjoyed this episode and it was um it's only the second episode of the season and they've already done this oh my god what else is coming it's going to be ridiculous um and really quickly before we get into our interviews i just had to add um it leaked today as of this recording that spider-man 2 Amazing Spider-Man 2, this is a big deal. Um, it's going to have a post-credit sequence that's a scene from X-Men Days of Future Past. Now, think about this for a moment. This is two separate studios. Yes, they're both Marvel comic properties. They're both Marvel comics. Two separate studios are coming together to pimp one another in, in a way. And I don't know if this is these two studios going, screw you, Marvel Studios. We're going to join forces and show people what we can do together. Is there a possibility here that they may even cross over with Marvel Studios? I seriously doubt it. I think this is a, ma a matter of Fox and Sony 
thinking that together they're stronger or at least equally strong as Marvel Studios. So that is happening. So you are going to have X-Men Days of Future Past in your Spider-Man 2, at least as a post-credit sequence. So that's kind of amazing that that's actually happening. So with that, we are on to our interviews. And uh, as I said, we're going to have the director of Nurse 3D and the directors and and uh, writers of Devil's Do. And so here we go. Here are our interviews. And I will see you next week on Fangirl Radio. Hey, everybody. I want to welcome Douglas Aronofsky. And I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, he is the director of Nurse 3D, which was an amazing film. And you should go pick it up on Blu-ray 3D right now because it is a fun piece of horror. And Doug, I want to thank you for joining us on Fangirl Radio. Oh, my gosh. Thank you guys for having me. I am I am very excited to talk to you because uh, you have managed to work on just about every movie I've loved for the past like twenty years. <sighs> so I'm impressed with Fantastic. your resume. Well, that makes two of us because I've loved every movie I've worked on. So I'm glad to hear that you have <laughs> the exact same taste that I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do, and I absolutely loved Nurse 3D. I, I I thought it was great, and my God, Paz just kicks so much ass in this film. Just. So much. She does. She's, uh, I, she's sexy and dangerous. Indeed. Yeah, and I want to I want to thank you for, for creating a new female horror icon in her because there's not very many, and she can hold her own for God's sake and with uh, with all, all the boys, definitely in this movie. Yeah, she definitely, she definitely can. Let's hope that there's uh, let's hope there's more to come from uh, from the mind and body of Abby Russell. My God. So uh, let's get into this. I've, I've got a, a ton of questions for you, but first and foremost, where did the idea for this film come from and how did it develop? Because it's it's got some elements from previous films, but it's such a spin on it and, and just the just everything about it. You, you took some you took and put it on its head. I really enjoyed it. So where did the idea from it, for it come from? Well, the idea originated from the marketing department at Lionsgate Films, uh, Tim Palin specifically, who is the marketing genius over at Lionsgate. And it, uh, it sort of derived from, I believe it was the last Saw movie that they had done over at Lionsgate. They were doing a marketing promotion, which was a blood drive, oddly enough. And, uh, <laughs> and they had dressed up a bunch of ladies in these, like, 40s and 50s, sort of this designer, this Moogler-esque type of um, nurse outfit to sort of run and, and uh, draw attention to the, to the blood drive. And so from that, Tim had gone to Lionsgate and said, you know, wouldn't this be a great backdrop for a sort of psycho, sexy horror movie where this, you know, nurse by day, nurse by night, sort of, you know, character arrives from. And they loved the idea. They commissioned a writer to come in. He did a draft, set up this very interesting world. And then I came in and sort of did a rewrite of the whole thing and sort of, sort of turned it on its head and made it much more of a sexy, um, you know, quasi-fucked up, can I say fucked up? Uh, fucked up, uh, you know, thriller, if you will. 
Well, and and I I've got to say I love the artwork. I, and and I I remember the blood drive stuff now that you said that that they were doing for yeah. Saw. And I know that the the artwork was a big big draw for this film too, but also the thing that that you did in this movie and and it's it's typical of the films that you've worked on, the visual style is like so stunning. What inspired this for you because some of this was just so trippy and just beautiful to watch. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, you know, um, my cinematographer and I, this guy Boris Majowski, who, who, um, who's from Bosnia, and he actually was a cinematographer on another movie I did called The Day. Anyway, mm-hmm. he and I sort of sat down. We had just finished making The Day, which was this ultra-low-budget, gritty, um, you know, very, very desaturated. I mean, as close to a black-and-white color palette as you can get for a film. Um, siege movie in the dirt, in the snow, like just brutal and grimy. And so we literally went from that movie right to Nurse. And so when we when I started writing the script, you know, I said to him, he and I, he and I are both giant fans of European cinema, and you know, him coming from Bosnia and really having this, you know, incredible European sensibility. We started looking at a lot of different, you know. European films and Japanese films, we really fell in love with sort of the noir look uh, that had just has sort of fallen by the wayside, you know, for many years. And we thought, wouldn't it be fun to sort of bring back that noirish look in a thriller or slasher movie, if you will? And so that was really sort of our inspiration. You know, we, we went in with very specific color palettes. Um, you know, we have a very uh, specific green hue that is all over the movie. Um, our reds are are all very blood red, if you notice, including like Paz's lipstick and you know di- different uh, the red on the crosses and throughout the hospital. Like we really wanted to accentuate the redness and the blood reds, especially without throughout the film. And so that really was, in terms of the look of the film, um, our inspiration. And then you know the other thing that we really sort of wanted to try and do, which is you know, it's not really done very often for this type of movie because, you know, 3D movies aren't usually done with a minimal budget. You know, usually you've got these big budget films that shoot 3D. We wanted to do something a little bit different. Lionsgate was really excited about, you know, bringing back the 3D genre, if you will, to horror, which they had done very successfully uh, with My Bloody Valentine. And so we really wanted to try and, you know, do the unexpected, which was really to keep the camera moving. And, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult proposition when you're shooting in 3D because the rig for shooting 3D is so gigantic. You know, it's literally two movie cameras next to each other. And so everything is twice as big, twice as wide, twice as heavy, twice as difficult. And so a lot of times 3D movies, I feel, suffer from, and it's not by anybody's fault, it's just the mechanics of what you can do, given that type of size, mm-hmm. is that a lot of 3D movies feel very static to me. You know, and the camera doesn't have the fluidity that it has if it's, you know, a regular film or a handheld film or even an action film, you know, where they can keep the camera moving and, you know, have interesting perspectives. And so we really tried to design as much as we could of the film to really keep the camera moving and flowing, which was a, a very difficult task, but I thought we pulled it off nicely. And so, yeah, those were... Those were really sort of our inspirations, if you will. Well, and that kind of answered my next question, which is what were the challenges of doing a 3D horror film? Because you're right, there's so many 
visual like cues that a horror film typically has to have that it would be difficult to do in 3D, but it's slowly coming into play with like movies like My Bloody Valentine 3D that know how to use it. And and like yeah, your film, yeah, it's tough when you're. It's, yeah, exactly, and it's really tough when you're shooting 3D because you know in order for the 3D perspective to work, you have to have depth of field. So when you're shooting a scene, you know if you were shooting a customary scene where two people were sitting in a room, let's say, you know, you could shoot that in a, in a conventional location or a conventional set that felt like, you know, whatever the organic set was. Whereas for 3D, if you shoot it too close to, let's say, a wall or uh, a building or anything like that, you lose the 3D perspective because in order to have that, what they call the interocular between the two eyes, you need to have depth within the location. So everything that we chose and every location and every set that we built had to have that depth. So again, you sort of have to come at it from, you know, a completely different perspective, which, you know, never having shot 3D before, we had to do a lot of, uh, a lot of research. We had, you know, the, the wonderful blessing of being able to speak to guys like Robert Rodriguez and Paul Anderson, who had, you know, shot tons of 3D and were, you know, really, really welcoming with, you know, there are question, our questions to them and, you know, how do you do some things or what's worked with you and what hasn't worked for you. And, you know, the great thing that they both said to me and to Boris was throw out the old school 3D. Like, don't even listen to the guys that shot original 3D where they tell you you've got to shoot wide lenses. They're, you know, they were basically like, pave your own way, cut your own path, do what you feel is the best way to tell your story, and then back into the 3D from there, which was really inspiring because, you know, it's a little daunting when you come into, when you're making a film and then you come into it with a technical challenge like 3D and never having shot on 3D or even worked on a 3D show, um, you know, it's a lot of pressure. And so it was nice to hear that these guys had tripped and stumbled and gotten, you know, dusted themselves off and gotten back up and figured out ways to do it. And then they were so generous with their time and, and, and sharing their stories with us so that we could you know, at least go in there with a game plan. So that, that really helped a lot. That's awesome. Um, so kind of, uh, kind of veering away from the technical aspect to, to more the artistic, what was, and, well, they're kind of both in your case, but what was it like developing the character of Abby with Paz? Because there, like I said originally, there was not a lot of horror female, uh, female horror icons out there. And her character is so awesome. I mean, she sticks with you and and she's such a badass uh so how was it developing with her because she kind of epitomized this whole like glorious goddess of blood kind of thing yeah she really did i mean you know listen when you're writing a story and a character you know you you write what's in your head and that's really all you have when you're typing away and so when i was you know creating abby and and going through you know what she would go through I didn't have pause in mind, obviously, because she hadn't been cast yet. And so once she came into the fold, and once we really started talking about who Abby was, you know, pause is a very, very interesting creature. I mean, she literally, I don't want to sound silly and say she embodied Abby, <laughs> but she literally dove into the character like no one I had ever seen. And I'll tell you a quick story. There was one night we were shooting, we'd shot a couple different sequences where um, she's attacking people in the hospital, right? And, and we had to shoot that in a couple different locations, so it wasn't always just done 
you know, in sequence within three or four days. So we had shot this on a Thursday and we were coming back to it on Friday. And so we wrapped up on Thursday night and Paz was covered in blood, having stabbed people. And I forget what, exactly what action she was doing, but she was literally covered in blood. Like her hair was covered in blood. Her face was covered in blood. And when normally when you wrap at the end of the day, you go into the makeup trailer, you get cleaned off. She didn't want to get cleaned off. So Paz <laughs> went home with the blood on her. And when she woke up the next day, because she knew that she was going to continue that sequence, she hadn't done anything to take the blood out of her hair or why she went to sleep with the blood on her and oh came my God. back because she knew that she was going to pick up where Abby had left off. And so she didn't want to have to sort of get back to that space. She felt like when she woke up, if she was covered in blood still, that she would already be in that headspace, which is a pretty gigantic dedication when it comes to an actor, you know, trying to really dive into a part. It sounds silly and crazy, but I have to tell you, when you watch the movie, you kind of get it because you've got to go to a different place to be able to pull that off. You know, you can't just be hanging out in your trailer and then show up and just become this sort of maniacal psycho killer. Like, I, I don't know how actors do it, but now seeing pauses, um, you know, world and, and how she sort of takes the little nuances and, and ratchets them up. I mean, she is Abby. I mean, she became Abby. You know, there's, there's no way that you can tell an actor or an actress to, you know, work out a character's nuances or embody a character in a certain way. Like, they're either going to become that character and give you everything you want, or you're going to have to struggle and try to find those moments where the character sort of arises within somebody's performance. For Paz's sake, you know, she really just came into 110%, and it was kind of like, you know, a caged animal. You just sort of let her out and let her go, and then you bring her back in and put her in the cage and just let her sort of sit there and stew and do normal Abby scenes, and then when it was time to explode, you just sort of took the chains off and let her rock. It was kind of cool to watch. It was pretty, it came across. I mean, it really did, especially the scene that I think you're talking about where he was just basically going around and just stabbing people and, and obviously getting off on doing that at the hospital. Yeah, it was like, it was like sex for her. Yeah, it was just ridiculous. Well, I, I know I've, I probably got to let you go here in about a minute, but I have, I have one more question I have to ask you about, and then I have to squee at you about one thing that you've done in your past as a, as a first assistant yeah. director. Um, so how did Kathleen Turner happen? Oh, Kathleen Turner. Wow, that's a great question. We were, <laughs> you know, when we were, uh, we were talking to the casting uh, directors about, you know, who would be great for this. And, you know, I'm just a gigantic Kathleen Turner fan. What can I tell you? I grew up watching Romancing the Stone and Body Heat and all these great movies. You know what I mean? And so <laughs> it was just, I honestly... I, I can't even say that it was like one person who said Kathleen. No, it was one person. That's, I'm sorry. It was. It was Mike Pasternak. Mike Pasternak at Lionsgate had seen her in a movie. He was flipping through the channels on the weekend. I was like, I just saw Kathleen Turner on something. And wouldn't she be fantastic? And we were like, oh, my God, she'd be amazing. Do you think she would do it? And they called her, and she said yes. And it was just one of those, like, incredible timing and somebody just had their cable network on and Kathleen Turner popped up. So that's how that came up. How crazy is that? It's so funny. Nobody's ever asked me that. That's so funny. I just had to watch that. I, I was just like, holy shit, Kathleen Turner. I was like, holy shit, that's how I felt too. I was like, holy shit, it's Kathleen Turner. 
Like, I couldn't even talk to her for like the first hour. I was like so in awe of her. And, you know, she came to the set and she was so amazing and so sweet and talking to all the actors and, and Judd, Judd Nelson was there and, and, you know, everybody was just kind of, they were, I mean, it, she's sort of movie royalty if you really think about her body of work, you know, and so everybody was just sort of picking her brain and chatting with her. And then, you know, I mean, I had talked to her about what was going on, but I hadn't really had a chance to sit down with her. And then there was a, we were doing the, uh, the sequence, the, the dinner, the, the, the party after the, um, after the pinning of the nurses and introducing them, what have you. And we had a big lighting change because we were in this beautiful location in downtown Toronto. We had to turn around all the condors on the streets. And I went up to her and I said, you know, we've got a good hour or so if you wanted to go back to your trailer and relax. And she said, are you kidding? She said, I love being on a movie set. This is what I do for a living. This is my life. I'm going to be here. And we just got to hang out. She was just the coolest. That's awesome. Well, Doug, I, I have to I have to freak out on one thing that you you worked on, and I don't know if anybody ever brings this up to you, but I love Jeffrey Combs with the passion of a fiery sun, and you I did Doctor Mordred. You worked on Doctor Mordred, and I love that movie. So thank you for Doctor Mordred. <laughs> oh my God, that was so much. On those movies that we did over Full Moon, Dr. Mordred, all those crazy oh, doll yeah. man, you know, and <laughs> versus demonic toys and all ridiculous films that we got to make over there. It was literally like a film school. Like, I got to just go there and figure out how to make movies, and they let me write one of the puppet masters. Like, it was just crazy stuff. It was really cool. So I'm glad that you like it. And Jeffrey is such a good guy, and I hope someday that I get to work with him again because he is just quite a talent, and we had so much fun making those movies, so I'm glad that you're a giant fan of those. I am, too. In fact, I'm looking over at my office right now, and there it is sitting on my shelf, so uh, I, love I love that movie so much. I love that he got to play a good guy, finally, and, and like, he looks so awesome in that, and I, he just, I love that movie. Um, but, uh, Doug, I, I think we have ran out of time with you, but I did want to ask you if you would be willing to come back on another show that we have on the network called Nightwatch, because you would love these guys. They're horror fans, old school horror fans, and um, Todd Sheets is the host of the show, and he would love to have you on to talk about all this great stuff that you've done. Anytime, anytime. You can, uh, you can, uh, Lionsgate has my number, or you can hit me on uh, Twitter. It's Doug AAA. And you can awesome. hit me there and send me a message. And yeah, anytime you guys want, just reach out and grab me and we'll make it happen. I would love that. Oh, you got it. Thank you so much, Doug. I, again, for this movie, for making an icon out of uh, Abby. It's just, oh my gosh. So I, I really enjoyed it. I, uh, I thought it was a oh, gorgeous well. work. Thank you so much, and thank you know all your all your uh, all your followers out there, and I hope they really enjoy this movie. You know, we we made the movie for the fans. You know, we didn't we weren't trying to uh, we weren't trying to do anything except entertain you for an hour and a half and make you laugh and make you squirm and make you jump and have a good time. And I hope that we succeeded. You totally did. Thank you so much. Put on. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Take care. Hey, everybody. I want to welcome Tyler Gillette and Chad Valella. Am I pronouncing that right? Valella, yeah. Valella. And uh, these gentlemen are part of Radio Silence, who brought us The Devil's Due, or Devil's Due, um, which is hitting DVD, uh, I believe, next week. 
week. And I wanted to welcome you guys to Fangirl Radio to talk about um, giving birth to Satan. Thanks for having us, Fangirl Radio. <laughs> so, so my first question is um, kind of uh, you, you, there's four of you that actually um, you collaborate on all these um, projects together. How is it to collaborate on, pro- on, on projects like this with, with so many people involved and, and to get everybody's voice heard within the production? Well, I, you know, I think that for us, it's something, it's how we've always worked. So it actually feels, it feels strange. It feels strange to us doing it the other way. And we've all worked on our, our own projects. This is in the distant, in the distant, distant past. Now we've worked on our own projects sort of separately, but, um, you know, I, I think that there's just some sort of strange alchemy or magic within the group that, um, that just makes it, that makes it possible. Number one, sustainable, number two, and more, and actually more effective number three, which, um, I think is sort of a surprise to people. I think it's, we're kind of the exception and, uh, and not the rule. I think people think, Oh my God, like a, a group of collaborators sort of coming in on one project, that's going to be four times the headache, but it's actually sort of the opposite. I mean, we just, um, it's really an ego free, an ego free group. And we came together that, you know, the, the group radio silence was born of just wanting to make really cool, really, really cool shit and hang out with our friends and, you know, as, as we've evolved into, you know, this sort of, I guess, I guess larger arena of, of feature films, uh, Devil's Due being our first, our first step into that, uh, we, we are, I think, really proud that we were able to bring what we've always done to this, this, larger, this larger process. And if that doesn't work, we just use rocks and hit each other with those. And, <laughs> and then film it. <laughs> 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 That's awesome. So, um, you you guys um, like the the stuff that I've seen online of the Chad, Matt, and Rob um, little mini shorts that are on YouTube, which are great, by the way. Um, you, uh, no problem. Uh, y- you've done a lot of found footage and camera he- handled camera work um, movies, and a lot of those are those. And then and this this film was a sort of an offshoot of the found footage. What is the most challenging thing in doing a fan footage camera held film and how is the process of directing it different from a regular movie? Oh man, how long, how long do we have? Three hours about, about the process with, <laughs> with sound footage in particular. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, I think, I think, I think one of the biggest one, go ahead, Jeff. I think one of the biggest ones for me is like the motivation of camera. Like, why does why does the camera exist in that world? Because I, I can't tell you the amount of times that we've actually sat down, thought of a really cool scene uh, um, that has like a really good, you know, a really good piece of story to it, and then we just would run up against the wall and be like, "Oh shit!" Like, how do we see that? Because there is no camera in it. Um, and and then just knowing that we need to have that camera live in that world and be in that world and break down all the walls, I think would be one of the biggest challenges for us. Um, Tyler, you go ahead and jump on that one. Yeah, no, I think that audiences are really, uh, cameras are so accessible now and there isn't, I mean, I don't know, I don't know anybody that doesn't, that doesn't have a camera on them at all times, whether it's, you know, via their phone or a digital SLR. I feel like that, that, that sort of, we're so saturated with that visual style that I think it's, it's become increasingly challenging to surprise to surprise people, and I think people are so savvy on you know on what the 
the digital media world is that you really do have to go to great lengths to justify why why the camera is in the scene and why the story being told uh, you sort of start you start out at a pretty significant deficit storytelling wise which can also you can also use that to your advantage I mean um, you know obviously I think limitations at times actually force you to be more more creative and make more interesting choices but um, you know for all the challenges that it presents I think there's also a real freedom to it and uh, and one of one of the things I think that we enjoyed most about the process of making devils do was was casting really great people who we trusted and who weren't who weren't who didn't show up to play a character, but who were themselves as as close to that, that character um, as as they could possibly be. So it really was about. I mean, like the direct. We said that the directing the movie really like ninety percent of it was just casting the right people and then trusting them to to have fun with the scenes. And we obviously knew what the scenes had to be about and you know had had the script in place. But uh, so much of what's great about the found footage style is not born of the sort of planning process that sort of happens spontaneously. And the parts that feel spontaneous are always the parts that feel more real. And, you know, really the movie, I think by and large is made up of those, you know, those sort of serendipitous things that we couldn't have really planned for on the day of. Gotcha. Um, so another question is, why do you think people are so fascinated by possession films? Because it's one of the my my phobia is are these kind of films. I, I they terrify the hell out of me because I saw The Exorcist when I was five. So why are people oh, wow. so fascinated by? Yeah, it's a, it's a trauma. Why are people so fascinated by possession films? No, my mom had me watch it with her when I was five. I, I have a very you twisted have mother. A bad girl. <laughs> I, I feel like we should flip the interview like, on you. Too. Right, Let's make this about you. Bad little girl. <laughs> if you don't say it then, we're going to tie you down and this will happen to you. Yeah, yeah. And then they, they laughed when I wouldn't go through the Hollywood Wax Museum because they had that big display of Linda Blair where the whole bedroom was recreated. Uh, oh, my God. I was a crying. The play of Linda Blair is so terrifying. <laughs> and the head there. turned. Yeah, the head oh, rotated, crazy. by the way. So it was really, really messed up. And they were laughing at me as I cried. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. And here we are. <laughs> and here we are talking about this. <laughs> so, but why do you um, think people I, are fascinated I, by them? I mean, I feel like that's an answer that that you could, you know, it, it's sort of different for for anybody who you ask. For me personally, I mean, I, I was raised with a little bit of religion in my life, but I think that there's there's something there's something so inspiring uh, in the unknown of what of what that is, like the idea that there is that there's a power so much bigger than you, and that's that's it's that's so incredibly transformative that you could never ever understand it, and that you know, that there's this sort of chance that it, that it could become a part of you in a way and sort of force you to force you to behave in a certain way. I feel like there's the mystery of that is always what's been really scary and fascinating about it to me is, is it like losing yourself in something that is so large and so, and it's so much larger than you and, and has so much more control than you'll ever have. And that's, that's my personal fascination with it. I don't know, Chad, do you have, do you have <laughs> a, 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 strong allure to exorcism movies? 
No, I, I mean, I just think that, that most of the world is religious, therefore there has to be the opposite of that, too, and I think that's why it's really translatable across across languages and everything like that, too, because if you believe in the good, you're going to believe in the bad, too, so it, it just becomes, there's a new fascination with it, um, and a, a accessibility and relatability to it. I also think that the best the best exorcism movie always the the lead character that eventually becomes the villain, but is generally the victim throughout the movie. Those people are usually are usually people uh, of of innocence um, to to like a very amplified degree. I mean, you know, Linda Blair's character in The Exorcist, um, you know, the Emily Rose movies, our our film, you know, it's so I think that there's something about taking a character that feels so pure and so good. And so, and so sort of flawless in so many ways, and, and then applying those, those ter- like terrifying attributes to them is also just a really effective and fascinating way to like watch a character fall apart. And um, I mean, they've certainly been doing that with exorcism movies for, for, for many years, far, far before we, you know, step, stepped in to tell this story. But, um, you know, so we're, I mean, we're huge fans of, of exorcism movies. So, and in this one, you've you've left it open for a sequel in, in a lot of ways. Where would you like to see that go, if possible? Because I know that the film did really well. I mean, I don't know. I think that the hard thing with any with any horror movie in, in general, but I think it's an even larger challenge with sound footage is creating a mythology that I actually feels like like it can hold the weight of something larger than one story. And we weren't really thinking about a sequel when we created the end, you know, when we, when we sort of were formulating that end tag that closes out the movie for us, it was more about showing, showing the reach of, of this evil and that it isn't just so, so specific to one part of the world that, you know, this is, um, that this is a process that's taking place globally and that nobody, nobody is safe from and everyone you know everyone could be a potential victim of of this evil right i know you, you the the first line of the movie the the text at the front says they're antichrists plural which is even more horrifying of a thing if you think about it so there's like an army of these things coming so i my i i i'm about to run out of time with you but i have one more question question and this is my creepy make you think about it question have you ever thought that when you're making one of these films that deals with evil spirits and things like that that you might someday read something up on the set that you don't want there oh yeah 100 percent on that one i remember like (laughs) while we were shooting this there was a day we shot in the church for the wedding scene and we were about to start the day, just about ready to start, and there was lightning and uh, tornado-like weather in in New Orleans, which is very not New Orleans-like weather. And we had to, like, stop production. We had to bring down the lights. We had to do everything. And power went out and everything. We're just, like, stuck in this church. Yeah. Like, I think we actually pushed that scene really to the next day, right? right. And then we ended yeah. up having additional problems to the next day trying to get that same scene like Zach and Allison uh, the two leads in the movie were literally about to say I do during the scene where you know where they where they get married and, and all the power went out in the church all of it Just, like in an instant we were all in in blackness so 
Wow. That that's kind of telling the church was an yeah, happy no, that, that you was, there. That was, that was, that was scary one. Yeah. Wow. Well, I didn't expect that kind of an answer, but that's a great answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, guys, I want to thank you so much. I love. I really, really enjoyed the movie. And um, is there anything that you want to add to um, to let our listeners know about it? That um, anything extra that they can uh, take away from uh, your film? I mean, I don't know. I mean, just you know, we we had so much fun making it, and we hope that we hope that the spirit of how we made it is represented in the movie. You know, we just really wanted to create something that that people could, um, could have fun watching and, you know, really fall in love with the characters and, and really relate to them. And, and then really, you know, hopefully by the end have a, you know, have a sense of, of, of like really following them through, through the tragedy that their life is. And, and hopefully, you know, scared, they're scared along the way, but, you know, we really just wanted to like make an intimate, fun movie. And, and, uh, we hope that, that the fun that we had making it translates for people. Well, I, I absolutely enjoyed it, and I love your little tie-in where the demon baby was attacking people. Oh man, that was wild! <laughs> <laughs> that, that went viral. I think it's nominated for a Webby, isn't it? I think it's. I think, yeah, I think it did for a Webby for that. The Think Moto guys. <laughs> that was great. I I saw all that, and I about died laughing. But. Uh, Guys, thank you again for coming on. We, I, like I said, I really love the movie, and it's going to be available on DVD, I believe, next week as of this airing. So pick that up if you love um, really cool uh, possession flicks. This is one of them. So uh, thank you again for Devil's Due, guys. Thank you again, Radio Silence. Thanks for having us.